marked first so that God knows those that are his and we're exempt from those things as they come because he says no harm to them as, as he sends his, his angels out for the judgment part. And we saw the beauty of that. And I thought, well, I want to talk a little bit about that judgment. I want to share with you the realms that are in the underworld. You know there's several of them, right? And it's, and it's in the middle of this earth somewhere. The word of God says and that there are different compartments. I wanted to, like one of them in the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, there's two compartments in Sheol there. We'll call one side the happy side and one side the unhappy side. Um, one is Abraham's bosom, the happy side, and the other one is called torments in the word of God. Then there's another compartment down there that was the angels that fell and uh, did that which was forbidden in Genesis chapter 6. And then I was going through and, you know, Jesus talked twice as many times about the hell and the Hadean realm than he did about heaven and that realm. So Jesus thought that it was very important for us to know about that so that we don't go there. Um, And that's where I was going. And then after studying all week, I sat down and the Spirit put something else within my, my heart that made perfect sense on tying together what we learned last week about Zechariah 5, and it's called Thieves and Pretenders. And um, so that's where we're going to go to this day. You know, last week we was introduced to it and we saw the, the huge flying scroll, and then we learned that that was the numbers of it, of how big it was, represented... Um, basically the only other numbers that was exactly that way was those numbers that were uh, of the tabernacle and the temple of God. So we saw that judgment begins at the house of God and and goes from there. And then the Lord really expanded on that this week. And every, every single word, every letter, every dot is there for a purpose. And it's for our benefit and for us to know about And it is explained somewhere else in the scriptures. The Bible interprets the Bible. And so it doesn't leave any room for our interpretations and our ideas. And oh, I think so. And and you know, you can sit around in a lot of places and, and people say, well, I think this one means this and I think it means that. And you can get six ideas before you get out of here. And you just pick the one that you thought was best, I guess. No, the word of God is alive and powerful it interprets itself and whenever you go digging deep into it it provides that that one way on what it is and with that's being said let's read again those just the first four verses this week because last week we read the whole thing and we saw that that later on there's going to be this this lady who's called wickedness and she's going to get shoved into a basket and two uh, women with wings in their uh, wind in their wings that look like storks' wings is going to carry that basket away to Shinar. We'll talk about that maybe next week. <laughs> I ain't gonna make no promises because I get led astray. But uh, we're gonna do the first four verses of Zechariah today and close that up because the rest of the verses per- pertain to the world, where the first four is talking in particular about the house of God. So. Zechariah chapter 5 verse 1 says, And I turned and I raised up my eyes and I saw a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I just told you, I see a flying scroll. And its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. And then this, he said to me, and this he is that teaching angel that's been with him through the first four chapters. And he said, This is the curse 
So that, that flying scroll, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll. Every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of the scroll. Verse 4, and I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief, and it will enter the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of the house and consume it with its timber and stones. It will end up consuming everything and bringing it down. Now, let's spend a moment outlining what we saw last week. We kind of did a little bit, but we saw this scroll. We, we saw these first few things. We, we saw that it, this is the curse. And, that, and then we saw the other things that I mentioned about the, the woman and the basket and the different things. And it was a wild vision. I mean, this is a crazy and a wild vision that was going on. And so we want to know what it means for us, right? That does me no good seeing all these things if I can't say, okay, what does it really mean? And how does that apply to us? And wow, I hope you're blown away like I was with what we're going to find out and talk about today. First of all, whenever he sees a flying scroll, what do we say the scroll represented? The curse. And, and what's usually written on the scroll? Words. And, and with the Bible, it's the word of God, right? So the scroll is the word of God. Didn't know it was the curse, though, did you? It is to those that don't know God, I reckon. But it's called the curse here. The scroll was the word of God. And we saw that it's very big. You could really read what was on it because at that size, that means it was 30 foot in length and 15 feet wide. A cubit is a foot and a half, 18 inches from, from the tip of your finger to your elbow. So the standard of measurement, we said that this represents a standard of measurement, which is the word of God, which will be the standard of measurement for whenever the curse, whenever the judgment goes out, it's the word of God that will be the standard of measurement that goes out across the land. And it's flying. That's pretty odd because scrolls just don't up and fly on their own, do they? Now, I've been known to get very upset at times and throw a book, right? You ever thrown anything? No, I know you guys haven't. I have. But whenever you get really upset, but this isn't the case. That was me propelling the book. But this is the scroll flying on its own. So that's supernatural. It means it's coming from God. God is lifting this scroll up. And since it's unrolled, that means God is revealing the word to us. There's something on it that is to be revealed for us so that we know what it is. And so what is that? Well, the, the next five verses is going to talk about the rest of the world. But these first four is beginning with us because of what we saw last week. Uh, if we look in 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, verse 16 through 19, quickly we saw that it says that, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin. And where does it begin? At the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous ones are scarcely saved, where will the ungodly as sinner appear then? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God 
commit to their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. We are to commit our souls unto him. Judgment begins here, but why? We saw that it was for a good thing, right? We saw last week that the pattern of that judgment that begins at the house of God, it began at my sanctuary in Ezekiel 9, it said. You remember that? God said there is abominations going on in, in this city, in Jerusalem, and in Judah. And my word is getting ready to go out against it. But he said, before the six men who had the clubs came in, he said, also another one showed up, and it was the man with the rider's inkhorn. You remember that? And what did he say? He told the man with the rider's inkhorn to go out and to mark those that were God's. And who were they? Those who cried and sighed after the abominations that was being done in this land. So the man with the rider's inkhorn went out and he went through the city. And everyone that was God's people. Everyone that cried and sighed over the abominations that's being done in the land and the country. That man marked them. And then when he came back he said I've done as you bid. And then he said to the other ones go. But do not touch those that are mine that have been marked. The same thing then we saw happened in the book of Revelation chapter 7. We saw that there was four angels holding back the four winds of destruction. It was getting ready to go. But God said first hold on. He said I, another angel appeared and he said go and mark and seal of God upon the foreheads of those who, who are my people. And that angel went about and did it. Before the destruction came, God marked those that were his. And we summed it all up by saying this. It's one of our chapters, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, and it has this seal, that the Lord knows those who are his. Isn't that a comforting thought? When we see all of this, it's about to happen. It's a comforting thought to know that we can't tell it. It's, it's beyond our realm of comprehension and sight. But there are angels who are going out and seeing that the seal of God is upon us so that that judgment does not come to us and that harm does not come to you and I. God protects us and loves us in that type of way. And so he makes sure that we are taken care of first. Let everyone then who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity because of that. Get ready for it. Depart from iniquity. Be God's that's marked on the forehead. Don't, don't be getting into um, the abominations and promoting those things. Like he said, I'm going to mark those who sigh and cry over the abominations that are happening in the land. So then... That gives us room now to context on verses 3 and 4 of Zechariah chapter 5. But first, before we go back to Zechariah 5 to see how this fits in, I want you to see the context of 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to calm down here for a second. I'm going to slow down. Because I really want you to see that when it says God knows those that are his, what's he talking about? Who are his? And how does God know that we are the sons of God. Verse 1 in Timothy if you go there. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 or follow along here. Verse 1. We are therefore to be strong in the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, that is taught from the word of God. And then he says this, commit these things, commit the word of God and commit these faithful sayings that I am telling you, commit them to men and faithful men who will teach others also. So what's, what's the importance of what, the work that we do? To teach the word of God, to get that knowledge within us. So he said, commit those teachings, not only to yourself, but to other men who can teach others also. What is taught from the word of God is doctrine. And it's all a part. And he says, the word of God, Timothy, begins with this, verse 3. That you and I, that are called out of the believers of the church in Christ, that we have to know one of these things is to endure all things, endure hardships, because we are what? Good soldiers. You know, we're in a spiritual warfare. It's really a battle. Most, most people don't understand that. Most, most places do not teach that anymore. Most places really just want to make you feel good and pat you on the back and then send you out there into the warfare and you've got no, no training for it, the word of God. You've, you've got no resistance to it. You don't even understand what's getting ready to come into your face out there from the works of darkness. He says, you are soldiers that I called you to be soldiers, good soldiers of Jesus Christ. You are in a spiritual warfare situation. Verse 4, no one, now let that sink in. He's not excluding anyone, is he? He says, no one engaged in warfare should entangle himself with the affairs of this life. Do not get entangled or wrapped up in the affairs and the earthly matters of things. Why? Because it gets you distracted. There is a war going on. And the war is for your soul. And the war is for the souls of your family. And your loved ones. And your friends. And he says do not get distracted in the things of this world. Because whenever you start working toward riches or fame. Or any of the, of the comforts of life. And you're wrapped up in those things. You are getting distracted from the battle that is really raging for your soul. You get to enjoy these things and pretty soon you forget about the things that are of the Lord's and what is important. Don't get distracted by that. And in verse 5, he's going to make a very special point for us. And pay attention to this one. It says, now look at this. If anyone competes in what? I'm sure, I don't want to see hands, but... I'm sure a lot of you have competed in something, athletics or even baking contests, or that you've competed in some way, some form, or you've watched it on TV, you've been exposed to athletics. What does it say about those who compete in athletics? What are they supposed to do? Supposed to win, but at all costs? No. Why? You've got to play by what? You've got to play by the rules. You know, I know uh, Tom back there, he came in with an Oakland Raiders cap the other day. And uh, I told him I've been an Oakland Raiders fan since I was five years old. And, and hey, that was before the Colts ever thought about leaving Baltimore and coming to Indiana, okay? So that was the first game I ever watched that I can remember. And they won big. And I seen that little pirate logo on there. And I said, that's my team. And it has been ever since. But you know what? 
Al Davis used to be the owner of the Raiders, and he's passed on several years ago, and his son has it now. But Al's, Al's slogan was what? Just win, baby. It would be up there, just win, baby. And he said, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. That's, that's the really the wrong way, isn't it? I mean, he's wanting to win at all costs, but in athletics, at that Super Bowl, you know what they had? They had extra officials, didn't they? How many cameras do they have from how many angles? Now, every play, every touchdown, all of these things get reviewed from all of those camera angles back in New York, don't they? At the official center. Why? Even the coaches have red bean bags so that if they think that they weren't following the rules or something went wrong, they can throw that bean bag out there and say, hey, I want you to check this again. Why? Because they want to follow the rules, don't they? Especially when it's in your favor and not the other guy. Now, if they miss it on the other guy, like the face mask that went on and you went down to score a touchdown and didn't call it, well, that's okay because it, it benefited my team. No, the Lord says that no one in Christ that's engaged in spiritual warfare, first, we don't entangle ourselves with the things of this world. And secondly, he reminds us that we have to compete if we want our crown. We have to compete in according to the rules. If you play in athletics at these Olympics, if they catch you being tested for something you're not supposed to have, they take away your medal, don't they? If you want the crown, well, yeah, it, they should, and they used to, but sometimes they overlook things now. But, but they're supposed to remove that because you did it illegally and not by the right form. So the Lord's telling you and I that just like he's a, comparing it to an athletic contest, that just in that type of way, you and I, as we are engaged in this battle, we have to do it by the rules. And what's the rules? The Word of God. The Word of God. And that's that flying scroll that's going out. The Word of God is going out to see who's playing by the rules and who's not playing by the rules, okay? So then we go down to verse 7. Consider what I say to you, that the Lord may give you understanding of all these things. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't usually move the Apostle Paul or any of the other writers. He doesn't usually move them this much to say, I want you to understand. I want you to get this. But this is of such importance, he's reemphasizing it. You're engaged in the warfare. You've got to play by the word of God. You've got to follow me. He is our Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the army, so we follow what his word says, so understand what I'm trying to tell you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If we go on down to verse 11, he said, it's a faithful saying that if we die in Christ, we will live with him. Isn't that great? If we die in Christ, playing with his rules and following what he said, we're going to live with him. If we endure all things, like it said, we will reign with him. If we deny him, though, he'll do what? And if we are faithless, you know what? He still remains faithful because he's not going to deny himself and his word. He's faithful to it. And then in verse 14, Timothy says, Remind them of these things. 
I am charging you to tell the folks there that you are with at Ephesus about these things. And you know what? That's my charge too. My charge as one of those who has been taught also so that you can teach others also is my charge is to remind us of these things because I'm going to tell you why. It is because I love each and every one of you. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I do not want any of us to fall short of what the word of God is, especially whenever that flying scroll comes out all over and starts at our house. We have to know the rules and to play by them, and it's my charge to deliver that because I want you to continue with me. We are, in verse 15, to be diligent, to present ourselves approved unto God, a worker that needs not to be ashamed because we what? Rightly divide the word of truth, the word of God. So we have to rightly divide it. We have to know it. And then it says after that, in verse 19, it says, the foundation of God stands sure. So all of these things was leading to this concrete statement, the foundation of it all. It says the foundation stands sure, the word of God stands sure upon this seal. The Lord knows those that are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Verse 20, because in a great house, the house of God, in a great house where judgment begins, there are not only vessels of gold and silver that are vessels of honor set apart for service, but there are also vessels who are wood and clay some in the house. Now, what's the word say right there? Some are for what? And some do what? I don't ever hear that discussed anymore. That in, in the house, there could be some of honor and some of dishonor. And you know what? I try to stay detached from everything, so I have no idea who, who falls into what category. My, my job is just to bring it forward so that you see it and realize it. It says that some of these are for honor and some will be for dishonor. And we'll find out in a minute what that means. But whenever it does, it says though there, therefore, that last verse in, there in 21, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from being a vessel of dishonor, you do not have to stay that way. You can cleanse yourself from that and it says he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master and prepared in every good work. How do you do that? You repent. You ask for forgiveness. First John, verse 9, chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. It says that if I ask for that forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive me of those sins and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And I, the blood of Christ will continually Wash away my sins and give me forgiveness. So that is how I do what it says to cleanse from that and to be then set, a, set a, aside, sanctified in a vessel of honor. And then he goes on in this chapter. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. The servant of the Lord should be able to teach with patience in all humility so that he can correct those who are in opposition to the truth of the word of God you don't do it in pride 
You don't do it in arrogance. You do it in humility. And not just hum humility, but in all humility. And in all gentleness. Why? Because you want to be Marvin Milk Toast? No. You do it because you love them and you want them to know the truth. And if you get arrogant and if you get abrasive and you come across the wrong way, will you listen? It'll shut you down. So it says to do it in the opposition in all humility as you try to correct and to teach properly. Why? It says that way maybe if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, come to their senses, and escape the snare of the devil that's been taking them captive to do his will. You see, we don't want anyone. The Lord says, I am long-suffering and I am patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as we, as we teach people, and as we go to our family and friends, and as we go to those that need to know these things, we don't do it in a puffiness, in an arrogance, but you do it in all gentleness and in all meekness and in all humility. Why? So that they will listen. And so that maybe then they will have the chance by hearing the power behind the word of God to, to realize and then to repent. And then God bring them to their senses and that they would be saved. And so that's our whole purpose on what we do in, in trying to teach and to preach the word of God. And that is to lead people to Christ and even us who might have fallen away somehow some way to bring them back as a brand you remember a couple of weeks ago whenever Joshua was standing there and the devil was trying to rebuke him before the, the Lord rebuked Satan as he tried to bring him up to him and the Lord says I rebuke you this one is a brand that's been pulled away from the fire you remember that that's what we're trying to do I think it's in James that it says that, that we go to save those that we see who are going astray and to pull them out of the fire, even if they're, so much as their clothes smell like fire, you've pulled them out and you've saved them. So we, we learn these, and we don't want to deceive ourselves to think that, that I am always all right, but I need to be inspecting my life. What did Jesus say? This isn't just us and through this. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7? Boy, this is a tough saying. This is one that, that hurts me and crushes me. He says, beware of those who claim to be sheep. Now, all of these things start circling like sheep. Keep a mental note of this as we go forward. Beware of those who claim to be sheep, but they are wolves in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their fruits. Because, you know, every tree that is good bears good fruit, and every tree that is bad bears bad fruit. And you can't get good fruit from a bad tree or vice versa. And then he says, every tree, how many? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? And then what? I don't want that. I don't know about you, but I'm voting. I don't want that, right? So everyone that does not bear those fruits in their life, it says, is cut down and thrown to their fire. By their fruits you will know them. And then he said this, and this just chills me. This is, what, this is what keeps me in tears half the time because I desire so much to be on this side of it and not that side. 
He says, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But many will say at that time, in that day, when they stand before me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, what? I pray that none of us ever hear those words. Because I know that everyone that is sitting here today is thinking those same things. That I am coming out to worship. I am doing those things. I pray. Isn't that the toughest, hardest, heartbreaking thing that you could hear? To be standing there thinking that I have done completely right. And then for him to say, I never knew you. Why? Because didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And what the Lord's trying to say It's not about what you do. It's about having a relationship with me. I never knew you. You did all those things but never wanted a relationship with me. You never knew me. And then he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me that practice lawlessness. You see, I can do all kinds of things, but in my heart, in my mind, and in my life, if my practice, if my design is lawlessness, but I'm okay because he's going to forgive everything, I don't know that I am having that relationship with him. And that was sobering. And these ain't my words. These are words that convict me from the king of kings and lord of lords who cannot lie and tells us the truth. And so I believe with all of my soul that that's some of the most heartbreaking words that we could ever hear. And it's my goal that it doesn't happen to me or my family or my family, my brothers and sisters that are in Christ. And so we, we teach this word of God. So with all of this is our foundation of knowledge. Now let's go back to Zechariah 5. And I want to share with you what's going on here. This is, this is, this is marvelous what it says. Zechariah 5. I see the flying scroll. That's the standard of measurement. That's the word of God that's going out from the house of God to his house first. That's, it's huge enough that we can all see it's been unrolled. Now we get to what's on there. It's been unrolled for us and there's something that's written on each side. In verse 3, the standard is revealed for this coming judgment that's going to happen here at that time, but it's also going to happen at the end of the age. This is a shadow of things to come. And in verse 3, it says this. Now, this is the curse. What I want you to know that that word this going forward throughout the rest of this chapter will be used about six or seven times. And it all refers back to this. It ties together everything in this chapter. That is the glue that holds it together. This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. And what does it say? Every thief will be expelled according to this side of the scroll. And every perjurer will be expelled according to the other side of the scroll. So, I will send out the curse. So that's the scroll flying. It is now leaving and going out. It is being sent out. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. And that word host means army, the warrior. It shall enter the house of the thief. And the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it shall go into the midst of the house. It will remain. It will consume it even down to the timber and the stones. Hmm. So what's that mean? Well, 
The scroll, we said, was the word of God and it's a standard. And what's the two standards that he's sending out to his people first? To his people. It goes around to his people looking for those who sigh and cry over the abominations. It looks for those who are washed in the blood of the lamb and walking in the light according to the light. And it says that on one side of it is looking for what was the eighth commandment. And that was thou shalt not steal in the physical sense. And then on the other side of it is written the third commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. You will not bear false witness against my name. You will not take my name in vain. So what it says is those represents the entire law of God. Why do you say that? Well, on one side, think of the Ten Commandments. On one side is five. On the other side is five. Number three and number eight is the center of both sides. This is a representation of all of them. It's a representation of that standard of God coming out into the house. And then it says, I will send out the curse. Now to understand the symbolism of the curse, it's a part of our um, Berean chapters, I think. But it's Galatians chapter 5. And I want you to write right here, Galatians or chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3. Because in Galatians chapter 3, this is where I told you, wow, I didn't know the word of God was part of the curse, was it? Well, the curse came in Genesis 3, whenever we fell and sin entered into the world. You remember, the man was cursed, the woman was cursed, and Satan was cursed, and then the earth was cursed. Because a part of our curse as the man was that the earth shall be cursed now, and shall bear forth thorns and thistles and briars and different things, and it will be by the sweat of your brow that you bring forth fruit. So there's an entire curse upon the entire world. Man, woman, children, earth. The entire curse. But then it says in Galatians 3 when it's talking about faith. And why would you want to go back to the law of God. The Old Testament when grace has come in through Christ. It says no one can be justified by the law. So whenever that thing's going out. It's going to be looking for those who are having a relationship with Christ. And are justified by faith. And not by the law of God. Because it says Christ. You can't be justified by the law. It is by faith. Christ redeemed us from the what? Curse of the law. So the law is just executing justice and righteousness. But that brings forth unto us the curse. But through grace we have the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going throughout first to see who. Who in the house of God is in Christ? Who has obeyed? Who has listened? Who has done those things to be washed in the blood and to be in Christ and following those things? It says that, that those who are a thief shall be expelled. It says back here in verse 3 and 4. And every perjurer or those who bear false witness against my name and takes my name in vain. Those will be expelled from here. And the word expelled, naka, means to empty or cleanse. To, to clean it out and to empty out. So what's God doing? Cleaning house. Whenever it starts at the house of God, he's cleaning house. He's finding out who is for real and who is not. Who is a thief or a pretender or who is real. And that's why we started this out, thieves and pretenders. Because behind the physical thing of thou shall not steal 
And thou shalt not bear false witness, and thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. There's also the spiritual side of it. And that's where this is going, so that's what I want to share with you now. Okay, who's the thief? Who's the thief when we're talking about it's going out from the house of God? Well, John 10. The Lord there in that beautiful uh, sermon that he gave right there, he begins talking about it's a sermon that I am the, the, the shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and I am watching over the sheep. And he said that, Assuredly, I say unto you, that he that does not enter into the sheepfold by me, the door, but climbs up by any other way, the, the same as a what? Thief and a robber. So, Jesus is the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no way to come to God except through him, right? But so many people try to do it in so many other different ways, either by their own works, by their own deeds, by what standard they want to set, or there's a lot of false religions who try to reel you in and say, oh, you, you can come into this one. There's a lot of phony false gods out there. Jesus said, ignore all of those things. I am the only way. I am the door. And if you try to come in by any other way, you are what? So what's the word of God as this scroll goes, gets ready to go flying out across our house? What's it looking for? Those who are trying to make it any other way than in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Because they are thieves and robbers. And he goes on to say down in verse 7, Most assuredly, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are what? Thieves and robbers. So now we got two categories of who are thieves and robbers. First, we got those who are trying to come up some other way into the house. But now we've got those who try to say Jesus is not the way and you do it my way or this religion or this false God that there's another way that all roads lead to the same place. No, they do not. There is one door. And if somebody tries to get you to go in by some other way, a false teacher, then who are they? They are also a thief and a robber. And so the word of God is going out across the land looking for false teachers and for those who follow false teaching and try to do it some other way by Christ. So that is who the thief and the robber is. And the thief, believe me, Jesus says in verse 10, does not desire anything but to lead you astray so that he can steal, kill, and destroy you. That's his goal. And he will do it by any means possible. He will try to tempt you. He will persuade you. He will lead you in. And he's, but his whole mission is to replace something else for you instead of Christ so that he can take away your soul. That's the battle. That's why we did started out with 2 Timothy 2 and how important it is. The foundation of God stands sure on this seal. He knows those that are his. And those that are his entered in through the door, which is Jesus Christ, and there's no other way. Those are thieves and robbers. So then he says, you cannot remain in a place then that teaches falsely, can you? Because you will be led astray. You, you wouldn't want to stay there. You want 
to be led into the proper door. The word of God in Zechariah 3 says this again. Chapter 5 verse 3 and 4. Timothy said the same thing that there are vessels of honor and some are dishonor. And you need to be cleansed. You need to become a vessel of honor and repent of those things and following the truth. And don't be a thief. Don't be a thief. Why? Because all thieves will be expelled from the house. God's going to clean house one day. What, what did the Lord say in one of his parables? It was called the wheat and the tares. You remember that one? And what happens in the wheat and the tares? But they grow up what? Together. God's going to be the one. It's not my job to separate that out. It's God's. He's going to do that. Maybe something will rub off. But God says there's going to be the evil one will, will try to lead astray and he'll sow tares among the wheat. But in the end, that's my problem. You keep preaching the truth and trying to tell him, which is a good seed, the word of God. The thief will be expelled. Then thou, that was commandment eight, thou shalt not steal. You are stealing away from the Lord if you think that you can get in any other way. And there's not. And then he says, those who swear falsely by my name or take my name in vain. Command number three. And then what most people don't realize, they don't finish the rest of the verse. Because when it says that, it goes on to say in Exodus, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What do you think taking his name in vain is? Saying that word that begins with G and the second word begins with D, you think that's what taking the Lord's name in vain is? We went through this before. See, we're schooled, aren't we? The, the word of God has been teaching us. What, what does it mean? It means we are the bride of Christ, aren't we? And whenever the bride says, I do, to the bridegroom, she takes what? His name. And you see, in Exodus, whenever God was giving this out to them, he was making a covenant relationship with his people, and they were becoming his people. They would be the children of Israel, the prince of God. They were going to be wearing God's name. They were going to be representing God's name from that desert wandering through the rest of time. They were supposed to be God's people and God's name. And he says, but when you say I do to me and you become mine, you do not take on my name in vain. In other words, you're not going to put me to shame. That's not what you do. And so you put on his name. Well, what is his name that we wear? You remember? Christian. Look at the next slide. What does Acts eleven twenty six say? When they found them, they brought them to Antioch in an entire year. They met there with the church and they taught the numbers of the people there and the disciples of the church were first called what? There at Antioch. God promoted, pronounced the name and the people started calling that and we're there today. This is New Life Christian Church because we wear the name of Christ. We are the bride of Christ we wear his name, and we are not to take upon his name in vain. We are to be vessels of honor, Timothy said in Second Timothy, of gold and silver and not vessels of dishonor. That, that is what bearing or taking the Lord's name in vain is. Actually, the Spirit inspired Paul in Second Corinthians here, and our next one is in 11.2. 
Paul was writing to him and he said, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I have espoused you. I have betrothed you to one husband and that I may present you as a chaste version to Christ. That is who our husband will be spiritually. It is Christ and the church is spiritually the bride of Christ. And he says, I am over you with a godly jealousy. I want you to be a spouse to Christ as a chaste virgin would be to him. Uh, this is what happens when you say, I do. Whenever, what do we do? Whenever, whenever in faith you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I say, do you believe that with all your heart? And you said, I do, didn't you? And then we went and was baptized into Christ. And then we put on Christ. I want to tell you that that is a great mystery. All of this coming into Christ and putting on to Christ. Our next slide is going to tell us that this is a great mystery. Between Christ and the church is the same relationship as a husband and wife. In Ephesians chapter 5. I don't know if you can read it. If you can't, get your Bible out. But in Ephesians 5, 22 to 32, he says... And you'll see the symbolism between husband and wife is the same symbolism of Christ and his church. And he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of that body. You see, the body represents her. We're going to see that in a minute. Her and she, that is the church, that is his bride. And he said, he is the head of it. He is the savior of her, the body of Christ. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their husbands and everything. And then the challenge to husbands is this. Love your wives. How much do I love them? Just as much as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse who? Her. You see, this is his bride. This is the bride of Christ. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. A vessel of honor. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. No man ever hated his own flesh, but he nourished and cherished it just like the Lord does his church. And, and he, for we are members of his body. You see, now all of a sudden we're members of his body. We are not our own. Now that we've been betrothed to him, we are members of his body. And it says, catch where I'm at, that we are members of his body. We are his flesh and what? We are part of his flesh and bone, the Lord. And for this reason, remember what Adam said whenever Eve was brought to him. For this reason shall a man leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So just as in husband and wife spiritually, that becomes one flesh when you're joined together. When we put on Christ and we say, I do, we become his bride, betrothed to him, and we are now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And he, Paul says, closing out this, this is a great mystery. 
This is something that has been unknown to this point. That's why it was Mysterion. It's a great mystery. He said, but I am now revealing it to you that I am speaking concerning Christ and the church. So you see how that the church is the bride of Christ and that we are betrothed to him and we are one in him and we have taken on his name. And you don't take the Lord's name on in vain when you come into him. And that was the great mystery that's been throughout the Bible from Genesis 3 until now. And then one day, guess what's going to happen to us who are espoused right now on this earth in the body of Christ? Guess what's going to happen next, though, at this great time after that flying scroll was went out and saw who was really marked that was his and vessels of honor and who was really a part of his body and bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We get to Revelation 19 and you know what's there? The wedding celebration. The wedding feast. And there's going to be two feasts actually in chapter 19 of Revelation. The first one is here that's the wedding feast with Christ. At the end of the chapter there's another feast and you and I do not want to be a part of that feast. You know what that feast is? Anybody have an idea? The second feast that's listed in there is the feast of the buzzards and the fowls of the air that's going to feast upon all of those who knew not God and battled against him. And they're going to be laid out and the great feast will be of the buzzards. I don't want that either. I have never thought that I wanted to be consumed by the fowls of the air. I don't know about you. Outlaw Josie Wales, you remember that? Whenever they shot the guy, he's laying there, and, and the other boy says, aren't we going to bury him? He goes, spit a little thing right there on his head, and he said, buzzard's got to eat too. Whew. I don't want no part of that. I want to be a part of this feast. Revelation 19, after God judged the harlot, the one pretending, the pretender to be religion, and the one pretending to be the one that, was, that we should worship and be in charge of, trying to go opposite of Christ, the true one. The true church, the faithful in Christ, will now become the full-fledged bride when we get taken up to that heavenly realm. And it says in 19 verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, the sound of the mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah! I want to hear you say it. Hallelujah! Why? Why are we saying hallelujah? For the Lord God reigns suddenly. And then it says this. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And to them it was granted the bride, us. At this point we get our garments. We get dressed in that wedding dress that the, that the ladies usually do. The marriage of the Lamb has come. She has made herself ready. She is granted to be arrayed now in her fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is what? The righteous acts of the saints. Those that were in Christ Jesus. We're not righteous on our own. Our righteousness is in Him. And so this is those who were clothed in Christ. We now get His garment of righteousness. Then He said, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of Lamb. And these are the true sayings of God. Isn't that where you want to be? I know it's where I want to be. I want to be a part of that marriage supper and not the one that's going to happen after that. And that's the bride of Christ. The time of the marriage of the Lamb has come. And we have made ourselves ready during this life. 
And that goes back then to Zechariah chapter 5. Oh, what a message. It took us two weeks. But now I can fully understand when it says that the scroll of the Lord went out. And what it said on it as a standard of measurement was as it went through the house of the Lord and going out through the land of God's people in Jerusalem. It said on one side, I don't want thieves and I don't want those who have bore false witness unto me and taken my name in vain. And so all of the pretenders and all of the thieves are expelled and kicked out so that then the marriage supper of those who did take the Lord's name in an honorable way and came in through the Lord Jesus Christ and not some other way as a thief would do, that those are the ones who will be granted to be sitting at that marriage supper of the Lamb. But we've learned a lot, haven't we, in the last two weeks and how that all tied together and pulled together on, on what the descriptions was trying to say. Man, if I tried to imagine all that myself, I'd have never come up. But you, you pray and you ask for guidance. And man, it, it took me in a direction I never believed possible. But now it all makes sense. They, that the word of God, that standard, was looking for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who had taken on his name, not in vain, but in, in dignity and in integrity. And that they didn't come in some other way and try to be a pretender or a thief. But we were true to him. And that we, we gave our lives to the shepherd and not the one who is trying to be the deceiver of the sheep. So as our praise team comes on back up and we return. We were in Galatians 3 a little bit earlier when we was talking about how that, that, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse. So what was it that was going out? It says when he sent the flying scroll, he said, this is the curse that goes out across all of the land. But Galatians 3 says that Christ has redeemed us from that curse. And he talks about it through the rest of the chapter all the way down to verse 26 and 27. And then he sums it with this. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And what was a part of that faith? Because it is by grace through faith that we are saved and not of ourselves it's a gift of God what is it as many of you as were baptized in the Christ you've put on Christ you've put him on you have taken on his name you've become his bride of Christ by putting him on I pray that if there is anyone here that has not done that today I don't know when that scroll will fly but I pray that you would make the decision this day to become part of that. This is ready. The towels are ready. The clothes are ready for you. If, if you have not named Christ. And become his bride. Please do that today. Without any hesitation. To those of us. Who are in Christ Jesus. I pray. That you and I make it our passion. Our daily commitment. To be his bride. That it's our driving goal. To never take the name of the Lord our Savior in vain but to wear it with integrity may we be washed may we be cleansed by water and by his word that on that great day I'm not a pretender and I'm not a thief but I'm called to the wedding supper of my bridegroom and father As we worship you this day and we have fellowship with you and your word. 
we can see the beauty, how that there was one idea tied behind everything, one thread that goes from the very first word of the scripture to the last. And it was all inspired and breathed by you and your Holy Spirit who gave it to us, Father. And across all of those years and those many different men that you moved to take up the pen and to write, that there is one message through it all. The Lord Jesus Christ redeemed you from the curse. So, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love that said, I so love the world that I will give my son. And I'm so grateful for the commitment of my Lord and Savior that when he stood there on that garden before they came to grab him and he said, if there is any other way, Father, let it be done. But if not, then I do give up my life, not my will, but thine be done. And I'm thankful for that marvelous integrity that he had to carry out your word and the courage to face what he knew that he was going to face that day and he did it looking forward Hebrews 12 says to us to all of those who would be saved by what he was doing so father we thank you for your love and grace and for his determination for the spirit who makes it real to us so that we can be converted and come to be the bride of Christ and Father, we long, we sigh and cry over the abominations, <coughs> excuse me, in this land. And we wait for that wedding supper. <coughs> in Jesus' name, amen.